Amen. Hey, uh, let, let's pray together. Because I don't know about you, but um, I, I probably don't need another sermon this morning. I've had a lot of them this semester. Um, what I do need is I need to hear from uh, my maker. And so uh, I, I don't want to just pray now. I'd like for you to pray. Just bow your head for just a second. Take just a minute and still your mind. And why don't you uh, ask the Lord to speak to you in the next few minutes? Father, your love for us is just incomprehensible. And God, the grace that you give us uh, every day is just beyond our understanding. We're not even aware of how many times and in how many ways you help us. And yet sometimes, Father, our commitment towards you is just totally contingent on those blessings. And yet you've given us so much in your cross. And so, Father, as we enter into our message time this morning, God, I, I pray that you would be the speaker, God, that you would take your word and that you would take this time and that you would take concern for your people in this room and, and those watching and listening to this. God, that you would, by a work of your Holy Spirit, just, just bypass all the walls between us and you and just dig like right down deep into our hearts exactly where we need it and just speak to us with the disciplining and loving hand of a father. And Lord, we'll give you the praise for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm not very comfortable just like walking uh, into a message. I, I got to take a second and still my mind and uh, to pray. But, but my personality uh, doesn't, you know, involve just praying and, you know, meditating and all these things. Uh, and in fact, I'm kind of fascinated by this whole like law school seminary thing, if you ask me. Uh, I think what would be a whole lot more interesting is if the law school and the seminary teamed up on Saturday and played against the Flames. I think that would be kind of kind of funny. Uh, and then they would have to unite together or just be annihilated, you know, and it wouldn't be the first time. Um, but but there's certain things you don't really imagine going together. You know, I mean, you don't imagine Ergen Cantor as a belly dancer. You know, you could never just, just see him going crazy up there. Um, you, Rosie O'Donnell owning a gym, you know, that's just, uh, yeah, er, I got that one from Ergen. Which, by the way, you notice Ergen left and he took the Cheetos with him. I think that was kind of funny. Um, uh, <laughs> I had a nightmare the other night and it was uh, um, a, a dance show, right? And uh, Queen Elizabeth was doing the cha-cha, and, uh, and, and Dr. Godwin was, um, was doing some craziness, and, uh, and Dr. Riss was like rapping, you know? It was just, it was interesting, the provost rapping and, and Dr. Godwin getting jiggy with it, and you know, and whatever that means. And then Queen Elizabeth, you know, doing the cha-cha. I mean, there's just things that when you like st- stop and think for a minute, you just don't imagine them going together, you know, like Hillary Clinton teaching in a fax department. You know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's or, or President Bush, for that matter, teaching in, in English department, you know, you just don't, you know, you don't see these things going together really well. Um, but, but the reason why that's the case, though, is because we have very unrealistic views of people. You know, we, for instance, if you've grown up in church like I've grown up in church, uh, you have very unrealistic views of biblical people. You, you can't imagine uh, a guy like David in the situation that I'm going to describe to you today. I mean, when you think of King David, who was 
um, just, the, just the greatest man of his entire time period. I mean, his power was something that we cannot fathom today because even though it was an era of small kingdoms, he was the kingpin of all the kingdoms. He, he never faced an army that he didn't just annihilate at the beginning of his campaigns. I mean, David wasn't winning battles he was annihilating nations, and, and he was this like, like no-name, everyday shepherd boy wandering around pastors with sheep that God exalted to a position of historic prominence. I mean, he was the one person that God said was the man after his own heart. I mean, I mean he was the shepherd-turned-Goliath slayer, and his writings in the, books of, in the book of Psalms are the most intimate descriptions in the entire Bible of a man who had a living and breathing and alive personal relationship with the Son of God. I mean, there was no one in history that knew God more clearly and more intimately than David. There was no more of an unexpected leader than this nomad shepherd boy who was never meant or believed to be king. I mean, never in all of history has there been someone whom God has lifted from such a low place and exalted to such prominence. And maybe most of you have, have heard the stories of, of David's progress and of his success. Or, or maybe you've heard the stories of, of, how, of how David, you know, walked up to Goliath when Saul was shuddering in the corner of the room. And he said, take my armor. And, and David couldn't even wear the armor. You know, it was, David was kind of like me. You could put the armor on me, you know, but it would just be like clanking around, you know. Be like a professional wrestler. <laughs> you don't want any more of this, you know. Oh, Sorry. It just came in my head. You'll get it later. My name's Johnny Moore. Anyhow, David was an unex. I know, sad. Uh, David was an unexpected leader, which is what makes this verse so absurd. Because in Second Samuel chapter fifteen, verse thirty, you find this king in a place that you would never expect him to be. Listen to this verse. Just read it on the screens. David continued up the Mount of Olives. He was weeping as he went. His head was covered. He was barefoot. And all of the people with him covered their heads too. And they were weeping as they went up. And so when you see on one side the image of, of David, the, the king with the crown and the royal robe and, and the victorious, you know, king soldier and, and, and the powerful wealthy man. You, you see that image. That, that's the popular image of David. But you stumble upon this totally absurd verse. And when I was reading this first in my quiet time, it's like I did a double take for a second. And I'm like, who and what just happened? I mean, here's the most powerful man in the world. He has the universal sign of poverty. His feet are totally bare. And I've been to this place. I've, I've sat on Mount Zion in the old city of Jerusalem. And I've looked down the valley of Kidron. And I've seen how the mountain rises up to the Mount of Olives. And it is this rocky and dirty and difficult terrain. And, and when, the, when the people would go to Jerusalem every year and you would read the Psalms they would sing as they ascended up the mountain. They would say things like, like Lord, you help my foot not to slip. Because the, the rocks were so laid on top of each other. It was a dangerous and difficult terrain to march on and here is the most powerful man in the world he doesn't even have any shoes on his feet he's got dust on his forehead he's covering his head he's in total and entire shame he was in the place of ultimate humiliation historically speaking you would you would only behave this way if if just the most dastardly things happened to you like if you were a farmer 
And the kingdom was enduring this, this unceasing drought. And you couldn't work if you wanted to because the ground had become cracked and hard and, and immovable. And so as an emblem, as a, as a symbol of your grief and of your shame, as a farmer who couldn't even work, you would cover your head and you would walk around barefoot through the kingdom. And everybody would know that the most difficult thing imaginable had happened to you. I mean, imagine if today you, you got on the news and, and President Bush had, had left the Oval Office and he had uh, taken off the, the blue suit he always adorns himself with and he, he's walking down the streets of Washington, D.C. and he's in ripped robes and dust is on his head. He's totally barefoot. He's weeping. And when I read this passage of Scripture, it, it demanded one thing from me. If the man who was the man after God's own heart can end up in such a difficult and humiliating kind of situation. Like, I owe it to myself to ask, how did this happen? The truth is, for some of you, you know exactly how this happened. Because you are in a state of just waste. If you want to know how it happened, you've got to fast forward about a flashback about a decade when, when David was at the height of his influence. He, he had killed the Moabites and the Ammonites. He had annihilated the Edomites and the Philistines. He, he had totally destroyed the Amalekites, the, the five great historic enemies of Israel. He just annihilated them, took them out, put them to the ground. I mean, in one sweeping force, it was all over. And 2 Samuel chapter 8 says, David had become famous because he had destroyed 18,000 soldiers in the Valley of the Salt. And the Lord gave him victory everywhere he went. David was like, he was like the American idol, you know. He came from nowhere in the pastor in the field and now he was famous and, and today his face would be on t-shirts and he would be hired to do publicity commercials for products and, and every mom in the entire kingdom wanted their daughter to marry a David and every dad in the entire kingdom wanted their son to be as courageous as David and all the gossip bearers and tabloid reporters followed him around the kingdom. They marked his every move because this man was so wealthy, successful, famous, so victorious. He was at the height of his success, the top of the mountain. No one had ever gotten higher than he was. And by the way, the kingdom was in good shape too. They had economic stability. Everybody felt safe and secure. Everybody, because of David, thought that no one could come against them. I mean, everything was going smoothly. Everything was just going perfectly. Everything was booming. There was security and peace, and you could lay your head and your pillow at night, and you could feel total calm. But you know, sometimes in your highest successes, you are most vulnerable to your greatest failures. Because when you stop having faith in God and you start having faith in yourself, when when you become prideful and you think it's just one more army and it's just one more battle and it's just one more trial and it's just one more thing, if I just make enough, be enough, have enough, if I just get to this place, everything will be okay. It's not presumptuous to say that this is where David got. David became a little too much about David, a little dependent upon himself, and, and he was less and less dependent upon God. And, and, and the Bible says that, that early one spring, early one spring, when the, when the winter winds turned to a pleasant little breeze, and, and when like, the flowers began to blossom, and the, the ground was thawed out by the, by the sun's rays, like, like early one spring at the time when kings went off to war, David sent Joab with the king's man, and the whole whole Israelite army. He sent them all out and David remained in Jerusalem. 
Now, if you just dance over that passage of Scripture and you don't let your mind interact with it, you totally miss the point of it. Because because you see, David, in that moment, made the first of two fatal, fatal mistakes in his life that led to this moment where he's weeping and mourning in just total humiliation up to the top of this Mount of Olives. This was the first of the fatal mistakes. And, And the first one was this thing. In the spring, when kings went out to war, when it was time to work and to war... David decided to rest. Now the kings would go out to war for a reason because at this time uh, the harvest was happening. And and so when you were fighting years and years and years ago, it was very, very difficult to um, feed your army. When you had tens of thousands of men walking out into the middle of of, uh, an unknown land to attack an unknown people, you, you weren't prepared for that. You couldn't carry that much food. And so you would wait to the spring and you would go out and you would attack armies. But on the way towards the kingdoms, you could eat the grain from their own field. The spring was the harvest time, the time for war. It was a time where the greatest kings went out and fought because a king's power wasn't in his palace. A king's power was in the number of battles he won. Like, like Shalmaneser, the great Assyrian king, he reigned for 35 years. He won 31 battles. But David got a little lazy. It was time to work. It was time to put his hand to the grindstone. It was like his son Solomon said one day, many years later in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 8, there is a time for war and there is a time for peace. And this was a time for war. And like my grandmother told me, and maybe your grandmother told you, like the idle time is the devil's playground. David knew what he should have been doing. He knew he should have been protecting his kingdom. He knew he had a responsibility. He knew what was the right thing to do. But he also knew that he had defeated all the great armies. He had defeated all the neighboring nations. And and this was just a tiny little skirmish. And so he thought... I deserve to rest. I've worked hard. And not that there aren't times to rest. I mean, Jesus went off to the wilderness and prayed. And you need times of rest. You need Sabbaths in your life where you just chill out and and take a break and think for a while and meditate on God and, and read his word and get the refreshing of your soul. I mean, there are times of peace, but there are times of war too. And you know what this means to a college student? It's wartime. So I've been where you are. I know what it's like to have the the assignments piling and piling and piling in. And I know what it's like to have all these competing responsibilities. Things that are good, they're not bad. But I got to go to this meeting and I want to do this ministry, you know. And and I want to like build on this relationship. Or I got to work on my social life. You know, I got to do all of these things. And it's very, very easy to forget why you are here. Why God brought you from that nation or from that state. Why God gathered this, this holy communion of 50 states and 80 nations from all over the world just to gather here to prepare to go out and to change the world. I mean, God brought you to this mountain for a reason. And the enemy's chief plan, man, he just wants to distract you. He just wants to throw things in your way that you weren't anticipating or expecting. He just wants to laden you down with good things so you miss the best thing and to get you to forget why you came here. Or or practically speaking, to get you to forget why you're spending so much money to be here. It's a time for war for you. And for what it means to you when, you know, when, when you are resting and you're supposed to be working, I'll tell you what it means. It means that, that the life, 
your living keeps ticking on and the assignments keep piling up and it becomes like quicksand. So being overwhelmed is actually a, a pretty simple equation. You know what being overwhelmed is? It's papers plus procrastination equals overwhelmed, okay? Which equals depression, which equals angry at your roommate, which equals angry at your mom, which equals let me just take another nap for another all afternoon and let me just fail to study for another test and fail that test. And then all of a sudden you feel yourself so deep in the quicksand that the harder you work and the harder you move, all you do is you sink deeper and deeper and deeper into that pit and you're just nose deeper, just about to your forehead. You feel like you're taking your last breaths and you just want to quit and go home where things are easy. You know, nothing worth doing is easy. Nothing. Why are you thinking about quitting? I mean, why did you come this far to this place for whatever that reason is, whether it's just a step of faith or whether you had some great vision in your life and this is a time for war. And you just... totally out of focus. You know, the worst thing is when you get piled in in all of these things and, and you get buried in all of these responsibilities and you get so, so deep, 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 deep is that, is that you begin to block things out and you just act like you don't have that problem or act like you don't have that test or I'm just going to worry, worry about that later. You know, and you're putting it aside and you're putting this aside and this aside and, and those, those little decisions have big consequences. It's a time for war, not a time for peace. You know what some of you need to do? You know what you need to do? When it's all done today, you need to go to your room and you need to look at your schedule for the next, like from now until Thanksgiving break. And you need to do four things. You need to eat, you need to sleep, you need to do homework, and you need to pray. And you don't need to go to another intramural sport. And you don't need to go to another activity. And you don't need to go to campus serve one more time. Because King Jesus has a call for your life. And it's one word, student. I'm not saying that any of those things are bad. I'm not saying that, you know, but I am saying you can be really, really out of balance. I mean, I mean, I love ministry. I love more than anything watching people's lives change and hearts molded. And, and that takes time and effort. That takes investment. And, and I'm not diminishing that at all whatsoever. But you've got to have a vision that she's past this Saturday or that prayer group or this gathering. I mean, you've got to see a vision that goes all the way to the end of your life when you have a degree and you walk across a stage like this one and you enter into a world that's boiling over and burning down in lostness and you have an education and you've got a passion and you're taking that world for Jesus. But you're sleeping in a season of work. I don't mean to make you feel guilty. Because I, I know that a lot of you, man, other people made decisions for you before you came here. Some of you freshmen, I mean, you didn't have an alarm clock in your house because mama came in every morning and kicked you out of the bed. And then when you didn't wake up, she drug you out of the bed, you know, and then she threw hot water on your, well, I guess not. <laughs> but you, you're used to people making decisions for you. It's your mama and your daddy aren't here. You're a big boy now, okay? You got to make the right decisions. 
I'm a bit on a rabbit trail, so let me get back here. I mean, but the point is, David should have been fighting. Instead, he was playing. But, but I think the, the most critical and most fatal mistake is the second and the last one he made. And, and by the way, there are all kinds of lessons in this story about success and people. I mean, you just read it and read it and read it. There's another lesson and another lesson. The hardest thing I had to do to prepare for this morning was cut out all these powerful lessons to focus on these two things. Number one, he was, he was resting when he should have been fighting. He was at peace when he should have been at war. And number two... Uh, Number two, in the spring when kings go to war, 2 Samuel 11 verse 1, he stayed home. But, but number two, if you read verse 2, 2 Samuel chapter 11 verse 2, it says he, he walks up to the roof of his house when he should have been fighting. He should have been with the army. Instead, he had all this idle time on, on his hands. And, and he walks to the roof of his house and he sees this woman bathing and she was gorgeous. And so David sent messengers. He said, go get that woman. Because no one was going to tell him no. By the way, that's the dangerous thing about success. One day, some of you, you business people, you're going to rise up to the upper echelon, you know, and no one's going to tell you what to do, and you're going to have to govern yourself. Or, or some of you teachers, you know, and you're, you're going to be a principal of a school one day, and the buck's going to stop with you. And some of you pastors, I mean, I mean no one's going to tell you what to do one day. You're going to have to govern yourself, which, by the way, is, is why, why we should care about all of this political stuff in this country, because we are a nation built on self-governance. And when people cannot govern themselves anymore— then slowly fires are set all across the kingdom and it will come crumbling down. And we live in a culture of people that don't know how to govern themselves and, and David had no authority but God and David's relationship with God was on the rocks. And so he walks up and he sees this woman bathing there and he sees her and she's gorgeous and he said, no one's gonna tell me no, I'm gonna do what I wanna do and he views her as an object instead of as a person and he says, go get that woman. Just because you can't have something doesn't mean you should t- get it. They've made a critical, fatal decision here. And, and I don't have time to give you the, the rest of the story. You, you probably know it. But, but she sleeps with him and, and, and she becomes pregnant. And, and now, now the godly pastor king, you know, like these pastors on TV that have these great, fantastic moral failures. And, and the church of Jesus Christ gets this big blot on its face. And all those people that hate God look back at the church and say, well, that's how you are. And they fail to forget that Jesus, they fail to remember that Jesus was most critical towards the hypocritical Pharisees. You know what's fantastic about, about all this? Absurd. David never saw it coming. Hey, he just thought he was just going to have this little decision, you know, and, and so it all be over because he's the king. And just as quickly as he could get her, he could send her away. Then she gets pregnant, and that messes up his plans. And so, so he's pacing around in his palace. His regal robe is rubbing the ground. He, he can't talk to his advisors about this because it, it's too embarrassing and, and too shameful. There's nothing he can do. So he's walking back and forth, and he's digging himself into the quicksand of the decision he made. And he's got to figure out how to, cr- how to crawl out of this. And so, so rather than just repenting, and rather than just, like, confessing, and rather than coming clean... You know what he does? He decides to cover it up. And when he covers it up, he he sends a rider out to the forces which are out fighting where he should have been. And he says, bring back her husband, Uriah. And Uriah comes and he says, Uriah, give me a report of what's going on. And then you can go spend, you know, the night at your house and, and take a break. And Uriah says this fantastic thing in 2 Samuel 11, 11. He said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah, they're staying in tents. And my master Joab 
and my Lord's men, they're camped in open fields. How could I go to my house, eat and drink and lie with my wife? How could I do that? As surely as I live, I will never do such a thing because he was honorable. He had great integrity and he was faithful to the king who was unfaithful to him. So, so David's plan, he's like, if I could just get, if I can just get Uriah to come back and, and then, then I, can, I, can, I can ask him some questions. So, he, so there's a reason, you know, it's my excuse. And then I'll just let him go sleep, you know, at home. And he hadn't been with his wife in a long time. So, so surely, you know, they'll, they'll get together. You know, they'll have sex. She'll get pregnant. This will cover it all up. No one will ever know a thing. But he had too much integrity. He said, if the ark of God is out in the battlefield and all of your men are sleeping in tents, I'm going to do the honorable. I can't go home. And so he slept outside. So the next night, it got even more sinister. David got Uriah drunk, the Bible says. He was swaggering and totally, totally drunk. And he said, just go home. But Uriah's integrity even transcended his drunkenness. And he lays down on the ground outside of the palace. He will not do it. So David whispers into the ears of an advisor. And he says, when you send Uriah back... Tell Joab, put him at the front of the line, which was a sentence of murder. I'm not saying that every bad decision is going to have such a severe domino effect. That, That would be foolish. That would be dramatic. But what I am saying is you never know. There's always a path that leads to a place you never expected. And some of you right now, you, you are premeditatively planning on cheating on God over Thanksgiving break. I don't have any agenda. I don't want you to be unholy. It's not that, it's not that I'm just like, be holy, be holy. Be, you know, I just want you to mess. I don't want you to mess up your life. I got to tell you, you sit down with Dwayne Carson and I and Keith Anderson over here for a little while. And, and you can hear the stories of tears that have flown out of our eyes because of Liberty students making stupid, stupid decisions that affected their entire life. And, and, and I'm not saying you're going to end up in a morgue. I'm not saying you're going to end up addicted. I'm not saying you're going to end up in, in some totally life-threatening, life-altering crash. What I am saying is, it's possible. See, David viewed that woman as an object, not as a person. He, he didn't see Bathsheba as a mommy or a wife. He didn't see her as a, as a woman made in the image of God. He, he didn't see her as, as someone that God loves deeply and dearly. He saw her as something to be used. And by the way, in our culture, this is what love means. You know, in our culture, this is how we're taught to treat people. You know, and, and I got to tell you, I know this is a little intense, but like our generation has to turn this around. And it's not just because God wants us to. It's because we will destroy ourselves this way. Because if you treat people like this, like an object, and one day you're busy, person and you rise up to the upper echelon of influence and you climb the corporate ladder by trudging and tromping over people underneath you and you get up there to that place it's like a bubble it looked so wonderful until you got it some of you date like this you know there's nothing to do with who that person you you're just like that girl who's hot you know or that guy who's hot is something for you to just conquer you're just like, I'm, I'm going after her. You guys sometimes play these stupid little games. You know, you play these little bets and you're like, I bet I can date her first or I bet I can date him first. And you, you do all these things, but you forget that this is a person. 
I tell you when I learned this lesson, it was in India when I was in the foothills of the Himalayan mountains where the Dalai Lama lives. And, and it was the summer and I, I could see like the mountains and the snow caps on them and these storms would rage over the mountains in the afternoon. It would pour and pour and pour rain. And so I rushed inside a shop where there was a 20-something Muslim shop owner and on our third cup of mint tea, he began to tell me of all the violence and all the, the bloodshed he had seen in Kashmir where he was from. And I'll never forget, he took his hand, he rolled it into a fist. I said, how did this affect you, seeing all this stuff? He rolled his hand into a fist. He beat his chest three times. He said, it just makes you so hard. And he said, it was only when it rained like that. And I looked out the window and the rain was pouring, pouring, pouring down. It was only when it rained like that, that the blood was washed off my streets. And do you know why I can love and pray for a Muslim terrorist that he would become saved? Because I don't know what would happen to me if I had seen and heard the kind of terror from the time I was a little kid. I don't know what would happen to me if I had had my parents' own blood splash on my legs. Not because of some western conflict with some other country, but because of just internal conflict. Because where there is no prince of peace, there is no peace. There are times for justice, of course. I mean, I mean, this is what happened with David. I mean, David was bringing justice to his kingdom. He was defeating all of, all of these enemies. But, but there's also a time for personhood and time of viewing people as the image of God. And by the way, if you don't do this, you totally miss the beauty of the body of Christ. I mean, I mean, the body of Christ is so amazing and so diverse and so incredible. I mean, you should just live in my house for a little while. You know, with, with me and David McKinney and Michael Miller and, uh, and, and, and uh, Chris Deitch. You know, Deitch wears overhauls all the time. David wears capris, you know, or a zoot suit. Michael wears these starch khakis and nice little polo shirt you know what I wear I don't know what I wear shirt suits or, or diesel jeans we all listen to different music you know if you walk into Deitch's room he's probably listening to you think my tractor's sexy you know or if you if you walk if you walk into David's room he's in some meditative trance listening to some European music I've never heard in my life you know or, or, or Michael downstairs he's listening to Narnia and he's actually into it and then when he's done he's gonna listen to Braveheart and I'm not sure if that's in the Liberty way or not to listen to it but he does you know and so center and and then me, I'm like listening, to, I'm listening to talk radio, you know, and I'm listening about the urban flight of birds in Afghanistan, you know, because we're just totally different people. But you know what? When you've got the Prince of Peace in your heart and you view people not as objects, you know, but if you view them as persons, you see how God has made all of this. And by the way, one week from now, 50% of the United States of America is going to be deeply, deeply disappointed in who becomes the president of the United States. And do you know who needs to illustrate to the world what it means to unite under a leader? the body of Jesus Christ. And I'm out of time. I gotta, I gotta go to the end of this thing. Um, the, the biggest lesson in all, all of this is, of course, that, that decisions have consequences. You know, when, when you make bad decisions, you, you never know where they're going to end up. You, you can change your major 2,000 times, for instance. And, and you can accrue another $40,000 of debt and add another three years to your school bill, okay? Or you could just fly in the face of the non-committal generation, right? And you could actually stick with what you started and take all that leftover money and time and get a master's degree in what you like. You've got to think a long time 
I mean, you're going to see the future, you know, because, by the way, this was just the beginning of the bad consequences. I mean, David's family is in uproar. He loses four sons. The kind of moral debauchery that happens as a result of this sin is something I can't even describe to you in a dignified way. I mean, it was a domino for him. It was, it just went down and down and down. It was just a disaster. But you know what's the most beautiful thing to me in all this? One final point in one little obscure verse in 2 Samuel 15, 30 to 32. It says, as I already read, that David climbed up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went in this just moment of just humiliation. And in verse 31, it says, Now David has been told that Ahithophel is among the conspirators. Let me translate that. When it says Ahithophel is among the conspirators, this was David's right-hand man. This was just a gut punch to go with everything else, that David's right-hand man was with the people trying to take over the kingdom. The guy taking over his kingdom was his own son. So it just hurt David. How how could someone I trusted so much betray me? And then, then you see up there where it says, Um, That Ahithophel was among the conspirators. And then it says, so David prayed. He prayed, oh Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. And when David arrived at the summit where people used to worship God, there's a whole sermon in that phrase right there. You ever feel that way in a place where you used to worship? The Vine Center is that place to some of you. So cold and distant and, and God just wants you to do what David did. When he found out the worst thing had happened, when he found out that his own trusted friend, you know, was now turning his back on him and supporting his son who was trying to kill him and take over the kingdom. It says, so David prayed. And then that phrase, when David arrived at the summit of the mountain where people used to worship God, Hushai the archite was there to meet him. His robe was torn and dust on his head. That name, Hushai the archite, is the man that God uses to save David's life and restore the kingdom back to him. So God never left David despite his sin. When David got on his knees in humility and he prayed, do you see how quick God answered? Immediately he sent Hushai. Now, David won't know this for a little while, but God immediately answered. You know, making life's decisions, is, is, it's a lot like navigating through a minefield. Every side of you, you know, I've been to the Golan Heights in Israel, where 40 years ago, Syrians put all these thousands of mines down there. And it's beautiful and it's gorgeous, but you can't hike through there because there's so many mines. And, 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 and if you step on one, you're going to explode. And that's how making decisions in life is. You know, if you, if you, if you work when you're supposed to rest, or, or if you view people as objects instead of person, if you get stuck in this kind of situation, there are all these little mines that if you just make this decision, it'll explode, it'll, it'll blow up and everything. And, and I know that in saying all this stuff, I could really scare you. But do you know know, how you navigate through a minefield like that? Do you know how a ship gets through a dangerous channel where there have been innumerable shipwrecks and it's just so difficult? You you know how you navigate through a minefield or, or take a ship through this dangerous place? You do three things. You read the maps. You learn from those who've been this way before. And you move ahead with caution. And I'm just telling you, if you keep Jesus in the center and you don't make the mistakes of David that all began with getting away from our God then you won't suffer. You can just move ahead. God will help you. God will help you with your decisions. You don't have to be worried about it. I mean, David said this at the end of his life in Psalm 37, 25. He said, I was young and then I was old and I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their kids begging bread. Keyword, the righteous. Some of you need to get to work. Some of you need to start treating people the way Jesus wants them treated. And some of you need to realize that Jesus has to be at the center of your life 
And then one day you'll realize what Paul said in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, one of my favorite verses. Soon the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. Let's pray. Jesus, I don't want to trivialize all the difficult decisions that had to be made in this room. And God, you don't know the innumerable, incalculable thoughts running through all these brains here, all the worries. I, I can't, you, you know them. I, I don't know them. You, you know them. And so, God, I pray that you will rush to the aid of those who do what David did, despite how deep they are in the quicksand. When they bow their knee and they pray for help, would you just answer them? And would you just help them? And would you just give them grace that's sufficient in their time of need? Amen. See you guys.